0: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
1: If you're a seeker, don't miss the inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening, Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles shamanic counselor and indigenously trained dream decoder, Sandra Cochran's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers throughout the Americas. Sandy's initiations across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt, combined with her knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth, influence her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private readings, sacred international journeys, a meditative CD, and her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate your earth walk and create a deeper connection to yourself. Find this and more at her website, starwalkervisions.com. Welcome to The Science of Magic, a place where science and magic come together to transform fact into evolving truth. We're proudly coming to you through the ever expanding X broadcast network, xzbn.net, and can also be found on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. I'm your host, Gwilde Wiecka. This hour, we'll be exploring a third option. If we become introspective enough, we can detect the themes running through our lives. One of mine is being placed in the middle of polarization and opposing viewpoints. I didn't grow up in one family, but in many. At age five, weekends were spent with my grandparents, who were devout Christians. During the week, I lived with my father and stepmother, (laughs) devout atheists. Both factions bludgeoned me with their viewpoint and openly condemned the other. Loving both, this caused great conflict in my young heart, a conflict I've spent the rest of my life trying to resolve. Even as a child, I could tell both viewpoints were short-sighted and incomplete. In contrast, I would sit outside under an ancient cottonwood tree on my father's farm and listen to the meadowlarks sing. It was there I came to know spirit. It was there I recognized truth. All aspects of life work together in perfect non-polarized synchronicity. Nature is all-inclusive, judging against nothing. Observing natural law brought an awareness of my place as an integral part of the circle of life. The tree didn't demand I agree with its viewpoint in order to lean up against its trunk, and the meadowlark shared its song, regardless of my species or gender. As I grew older, I lived with many families overseas, where I was exposed to cultural and political polarization. Standing in the middle and contemplating opposing viewpoints revealed partial truth and limitations in disparate political and cultural beliefs a kernel of truth with giant leaps of illogic and agreed-upon dogma. In college, I studied science and religion, both of which were polarized and mutually exclusive. The antagonism is currently evident in the New Age movement versus the materialistic scientific approach. While New Age seekers tend to look for spirit and ancient practices, they often don't follow the forms to their roots. Instead, they might incorporate a little from here, a little from there, expecting magic to take care of the rest. On the other hand, science pursues fact through scientific studies distorted by the observer effect and reliance upon instrumentation too coarse to register spiritual frequencies. The process results in erroneous or incomplete conclusions. The current human systems all share one basic flaw. They've been designed around polarization and opposing viewpoints. At this time in history, we're moving into a portion of the galaxy that supports non-duality and unification. Pressure is being brought to bear on polarized systems. These archaic structures are crumbling, leaving us with seemingly no guidance and no place to turn. I've always had a deep sense that something much greater than any of us flows through and unites all things. I couldn't understand why those around me look for spirit in or facts in differences and disagreement rather than in similarities and alignment. When did humans step out of the flow of life, and why? When the human world makes no sense, which is often, I return to nature where all is one. The natural world has become a litmus test, one that never fails me. Any time I'm presented with a viewpoint or a set of beliefs, I compare it to the way life works. If the proposed reality doesn't line up with the spirit of nature, I know it's intrinsically flawed. Our guest this hour, Steve McIntosh, is a leader in the integral philosophy movement and an author of the books The Presence of the Infinite, Evolution's Purpose, and Integral Consciousness. In addition to his work in spiritual philosophy, Steve is also a co-founder and president of the Integral Political Think Tank, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which focuses on the cultural roots of America's challenges. Prior to his involvement with the Integral Movement, he had a variety of other successful careers, including founding the Consumer Products Company, Now and Zen. After this commercial break, I'll introduce Steve, and together we'll examine spirituality, non-duality, evolutionary consciousness, and spiritual leadership. It should be transformative, so don't go away. You're listening to The Science of Magic, prior innovative episodes can always be found on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. I'm your host, Gwelda Wiecka. Our guest this hour, Steve McIntosh, is a leader in the integral philosophy movement and the author of the books, The Presence of the Infinite, Evolution's Purpose, and Integral Consciousness. His website is stevemackintosh.com. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the Science of Magic.
3: Hi, Gwelda. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Yeah, I understand you have a background in law. What drew you to work with spiritual philosophy? Well, I, I was
3: much into spirituality, alternative progressive spirituality, uh, in the 70s, and I had really identified myself as what we might think of today as a New Ager. Uh, but uh, towards the end of the 70s, I realized that I, I wanted to have the, the um, you know creative advantages of being part of the mainstream culture, not that I was... Uh, you know, going to completely co-opt myself. But I went to business school and then to law school uh, in order to get the establishment credentials I needed to create things and to be, you know, financially independent, even while I was, uh, you know, a spy for the new age <laughs> the whole time. But um, so it wasn't as if I started out thinking like a lawyer and then became a spiritual person. I was a spiritual person and I wanted to study law. And, um, you know, I, I worked that career out and got a lot out of it, um, but um you know, I wasn't. I didn't practice law for too many years.
1: Mm. You know, I, I find it increasingly amazing how extreme polarization seems to have worked its way into every aspect of human life. It's almost like a madness. Would Would you speak to this? Sure. Well,
3: polarity is a condition of the universe. Uh, in other words, we could we could look at the, the sort of the master polarity as infinite and finite, or or being and becoming. You know, or absolute and relative. Uh, as long as we're here in the finite universe of becoming, the pattern of becoming is polarity, right? Something new emerges, something more comes from something less, and that creates a, a kind of polarity. So the polarities that we see in life, both the positive-positive polarities like male-female or uh, you know freedom and order, or the positive-negative polarities like you know poverty and and uh, and prosperity, right? These these polarities are. Uh, largely created by the conditions of becoming in the universe, and we can either uh, work with polarities to um, uh, maximize their generative potential, you know, their procreative potential, like male and female, or we can um, fall into a variety of fallacies that, that, that uh, attend to the management of polarities, like, for instance, uh, you know, clinging always to one pole, pole and, and never the other. You know, one pole good, the other pole bad. Or simply trying to always meet in the middle, you know, kind of a compromise fallacy of trying to split the difference between every polarity. Um, but when we understand that polarities are a condition of being and becoming, um, we, can, we find that there's a, actually a practice of working with them uh, that um, keeps us from falling into extremes and getting stuck.
1: We know it's it's um, moving a positive and negative around a neutral pole is the basis behind generating electricity and all other kind of energy. So the key here is movement. Is that what you're saying? Well, I,
3: I wouldn't simplify it to say just that the key is movement. I would say that uh, understanding polarities involves uh, being able to tell the difference between a, a permanent polarity to be managed that continuously recurs and that is, is sort of indestructible, you know, continues to come up, and understanding some kinds of polarities are problems to be solved. Uh, so, for instance, you know, prosperity and poverty is, is a problem to be solved. I think that even though there's a polarity there, and there will be for as long as we're alive, uh, I think that eventually uh, we can bring prosperity to just about everybody in the world. So that's a, you know, even though it's a polarity, it's a, it's a, it's a polarity that we can work with and, and actually, um, you know, get beyond but other kinds of polarities, like freedom and order, or even <clears throat> competition and cooperation, these continue to recur. And we're dealing with an interdependent, positive-positive polarity. Part of the way of understanding it is that th- th- not only are, is polarity the condition of the universe, but it's also inherent in almost every situation where value is being created. In other words, values themselves and things that create value cohere in polar sets, and, and so when you have a polarity that's positive, positive, and interdependent, if you go too far to, to, to one, on one pole to the exclusion of the other, pathology results. You know, ideally, the two poles rule each other. So a good example would be uh, in a work environment. Right? People who are managing other people uh, have to work with a polarity of challenge and support. Right? In other words, if it's too much challenge, if you're on somebody's case all day long, then the work environment becomes toxic right? and, and morale is sapped. But in a work environment, if it's all support, people, in a sense, become spoiled or lazy. At least some do. Uh, You know, some work better in an environment of support. Others work better in an environment of challenge. But overall, uh, these two positive, positive ways of working with people, they're interdependent in the sense that one uh, ideally works with the other to maximize its relative value creation, if, if I can get that across.
1: So when does uh, polarity become um non-productive?
3: Well, p- polarity becomes non-productive when uh, uh people approach it in a binary way, when when they're dealing with a a a permanent positive positive polarity, but they see it not as a system to be managed but as a problem to be solved. So for example, if in a political situation, uh, the people who occupy the other side of the political pole from you are always wrong or always idiots or you know, need to be crushed at all costs, then you find yourself uh, clinging to one side of a polarity without recognizing the, the need for integration and interdependence.
1: How much does that um, stance that you just described have to do with projection of our things that we were in denial of onto the other party?
3: Well, certainly, that comes into it. I mean, you know, if we were to analyze the psychology of uh you know uh, uh, pathological polarity management, if you will, uh then we could identify many contributing factors uh that that cause projection or make people afraid or or uh, uh, make them think in in binary black and white terms. um part of it has to do with their worldview, you know the frame of values that they have. Uh, And whether that uh, value frame uh, is inclusive of other values or whether it uh, is more defensive um, in in the protection of its own values against those that it sees as uh, opponents or enemies.
1: You know, we we often talk about how with the Internet and everything, the world is shrinking. Do you think this is having an effect on the worldview? What what effect do you think this is having on the tendency to, to polarize in a negative way? Well, certainly
3: the uh, media silos that are created by social media, for example, you know, the echo chambers, uh, the media is undergoing um, a, a definitely a huge uh, transition, you know, as as is, is obvious and even cliche to talk about. Um, but even as it becomes, uh, there there are forces of decay which make the media less truthful, which make it more polarized, more siloed. Uh, there's a real upside to that, and that is the media is increasingly democratized. So it used to be that there, were, at least in America, there are three networks, and they controlled the news, and they had a kind of a, 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 a um, middle consensus of the American opinion, and uh, uh, other viewpoints on the tail ends of the spectrum were were definitely frozen out within the media that people could consume. Now. Uh, not only do we have negative fringe uh, views readily available and in, in, in a media space, but we also have transformative views that were seen by the mainstream as being fringe uh, and were excluded just like the the negative uh, fringe but the the democratization of of the media is is the the upside to the downside of the um, uh, the tribalism you know, that's being uh, created by the lack of a coherent uh, authority that we can look to in the media.
1: So there's a certain amount of um, irresponsibility in the media at this point um, as far as what's going out there and how it's negative and how it creates um, the, the difficult type of polarization where people get locked down. And at the same time, you're saying that there's a, a positive side to that?
3: Well, sure. Uh, that is, you know, part of the reason that uh, – uh... american culture american political culture is so divided and split is that uh... It, it, it's it's somewhat as a result of, of two l- different moral systems pulling on uh, the body politic pulling on the electorate they're competing you know, the traditional moral system and the progressive moral system uh... are both in a sense um... seeking to be the authority for values in the culture and, and some people are pulled toward the more traditional set of values. Other people are pulled toward the more progressive set of values. It's not a simple binary. I mean, there, there's, there's, it's a complex picture that may be a little bit too complex to unpack in this context. But part of the reason that we're polarized is that, that this is a result of growth, right? The emergence of new kinds of culture have disrupted the old center, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the way evolution works—not just biological evolution, but also cultural evolution—is that first there's differentiation, and that leads to, or at least makes possible, a higher level of integration. So we, we're, we're, our culture is differentiating from a more uh, uh, monolithic cultural consensus into one that's, you know, currently constituted by uh, severe polarization uh, and there's two ways that that might turn out. One way is it might result in a regression, right? In other words, we we might regress back to an earlier time when there was less polarity. I don't think that's going to be the case. But the the upside, the positive potential for this uh, challenging situation of a divided uh, uh, um, national body is uh, for there to appear a, a new level, an integrative level, right? This this. This uh, evolutionary pattern was first recognized by the idealist philosophers 200 years ago, you know, Hegel, right, many people are familiar with him, his idea of of, uh, the dialectical progression, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? So over the last 70 years or more, depending on how you divide it up, there's been a new antithesis to the mainstream, right? A a new counterculture that's emerged since the 60s and has consolidated into a, a significant cultural block, uh, and that, that stands, you know, in, in, in some ways in contempt of modernity and, and questions uh, many of the pathologies that have arisen around, uh, you know, the, the modernization of the developed world. And so there are many valid criticisms that, are, that have been brought up in many ways that modernity fails at being, uh, you know, adequate to humanity's ideals. And this antithesis uh, has caused a disruption for good and for bad but it calls forth, it's pointing to the potential of a higher-level synthesis, right? So if I could just add one more thing about that philosophically, Hegel rarely, if if only once, described this process of emergence and development. He didn't describe it as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. He described it as affirmation, negation, and then negation of the negation. And what that means is that the progressive, postmodern, countercultural, cultural-creative, Culture, which I've been part of for many years, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's defined my identity since the 70s, that in a sense has has in many ways that it's made its evolutionary advance by rejecting materialism, scientism, consumerism, environmental degradation, all the, uh, the things that it can point to about modernity, which it sees as pathological. So that's a kind of a negation of modernity's thesis. Now, the synthesis, this integral or evolutionary perspective that's emerging beyond the progressive worldview, including it, but also attempting to transcend it, that it makes its advance in a sense by negating at least part of the ne- original negation. In other words, we're, we're saying, okay, modernity is pathological in many ways, but we're we also to, see that we're Steve, standing we're gonna, on a
1: sugar. We're going to have to take a quick commercial break, and we'll pick up with this on the other side. Steve and I will return to our discussion on the flip side. We're coming to you through the Exxon Broadcast Network. Don't miss the other fine shows and hosts on xzbn.net. You're listening to the Science of Magic, thescienceofmagic.net. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. There's more practical spirituality to come, so don't you go away. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, a place where magic and science come together to promote enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwelda Wiecka. Our guest is our Steve McIntosh, the author of The Presence of the Infinite, Evolution's Purpose, and Integral Consciousness. Stephen, as you were talking, it it strikes me that we're really kind of in volatile times, aren't we?
3: Well, indeed. Uh, They're they're volatile in the sense that uh, things are emerging quickly uh and and uh, the the rapidity of that emergence is in some ways destabilizing right so we see the phenomenon of Trump in the United States part of that is uh, uh can be explained as a reaction against many of the the rapid progressive cultural changes that have, have occurred over the last few years um, and while that doesn't excuse it or or reduce you know at least from my perspective the horror of it uh there are, there's a ways in, in which we can contextualize it in history and in the evolution of consciousness and culture that helps us appreciate that it's not necessarily the decline and fall of Western civilization, that, that, that there, there's, there's a certain amount of adjustment. I mean, we go forward and we have to go back a little bit and reconsolidate, and that allows us to go further forward. So I, I'm definitely optimistic, despite
1: the turmoil that we're in at the moment. Well, process is ugly, isn't it? <laughs> why, <laughs> why, why do you think we're evolving at this time? Well, I think that
3: evolution is our condition, and, you know, our, indeed our purpose in the universe is to is to evolve, to participate in the becoming, not just as spectators or people going along for the ride, but as participants, as agents of evolution, right? And, and when I talk about evolution, I'm talking about this, this, the universe's ceaseless process of becoming, right, which occurs in, in cosmology, in biology, and also continuing in a new phase in consciousness and culture. And... This this evolution of consciousness and culture that we're participating in uh, is uh, it's it, it's it's been uh, occurring all along, but we're in a kind of a cultural Cambrian explosion, if you will, at least for the last 300 years. In that um, uh, evolution has, has been speeding up, uh, but the uh, way evolution I, works can I,
1: is can I go ask on, you? Yeah, jump in? Yeah, why why is it speeding up? What what's causing that? Well, part of it is. Connectivity, right? In other words, we we now have
3: this amazing global communication system. So even as the world is bigger than it's ever been, you know, seven billion people or whatever it is by now, it's also smaller than it's ever been because we're more connected, right? What happens on the other side of the world can affect us directly in ways that uh, you know we were insulated from before. And so that connectivity uh, has sped things up tremendously. Also, humans have been empowered physically by, uh, by the wealth, the great enrichment. It used to be that the vast majority of the world lived on the equivalent of $2 a day. And while way too many people still are locked in grinding poverty at $2 a day or whatever... Uh, we now have a giant portion of the world who now makes thousands of times more than that, uh, even if they're not wealthy, even if they're just participants in the normal, you know, mainstream economy of the developed world. If we measure enrichment in terms of power, in terms of so, the ability to communicate on this democratized media, right, the ability to travel, the ability to to gain the world's knowledge at, with a click, um, this is significant empowerment of humanity, both materially and by way of knowledge.
1: And so if we're, um, not, if we're not tied up, if we're not tied up in hand to mouth, uh, that gives us more time to get into trouble <laughs>
3: or well, to, contemplate. To, <laughs> to, to
4: contemplate Certainly, you know, more things, power
3: yeah. and more opportunity creates more opportunity for trouble, but it also creates more opportunity for positive growth.
1: Right, exactly. So we have more time to contemplate higher, higher, higher things, right?
3: Absolutely, right? In other words, uh, many of the achievements of postmodern culture, right, the, of the prioritization of the environment – as, as a cultural uh, value, the environment, for example, that it, uh, it, it's fundamental, but it's also a luxury in the sense that people who live in third world countries, for example, they may care about the environment, but, but feeding their children is a much higher priority. And if that involves you know, deforesting a hillside to keep warm, then they've got to do that. We don't have to do that. so We have the luxury of caring about the environment. It's an achievement that's, that's standing on the shoulders of the previous achievements of the Great Enrichment. So it's important to appreciate how these stages of development in consciousness and culture are interdependent. Just like I was about to say, all levels of evolution, the way evolution works is it builds on what came before. It doesn't just transcend, it also includes, right? So, you know, so, uh, the, our bodies are made up of cells. Cells are made up of molecules. There's this natural holarchy, as it's known in the integral parlance. And that same holarchy can be recognized in culture, where we're depending upon the achievements of earlier levels. So that's one of the programs of uh, integral uh, consciousness or integral philosophy is to try to reintegrate the best of what came before while skillfully uh, pruning away the pathologies that are attended upon those earlier stages of development.
1: So basically what we're seeing in this integral consciousness is um, what we see in all life. When we're going to evolve, we have to break things down to their constituent parts and rearrange them into the new form. And that's that process's ugly piece. Is this what you're talking about?
3: Well, not exactly. You know, I would say that, that, that because we're, we're trying to go beyond what's, what's wrong, you know, all of us have a sense, most humans at least, have a sense of our, our opportunity to contribute to making the world a better place, you know, to making ourselves more evolved, to making our culture more evolved, to helping people who are in need, to solving uh, many of the problems that confront us in this world of trouble and suffering. So our instinct to try to make things better begins by noticing what's wrong, by rejecting the pathology of the existing conditions. And so that makes people restless, it makes people uh, combative, right? They're trying to condemn what's wrong. And so it can take the form of of a positive, uh, grasping for higher values, higher, more inclusive uh, cultural agreement structures. Or it can involve tearing down the problems of, of what's wrong uh, that came before. And, and you know, they're, I think there are healthy and negative versions of both of those processes, but they, they exist together. You know, we've got to get rid of what's wrong and we've got to build on what's right.
1: So we, um, living in these volatile times, and I, I can't help but, you know, I talk to a lot of people and I can't help but notice a lot of people are just kind of lost. They're just kind of f- floundering because everything's changing so rapidly and they're losing their way what kind of leadership do you think society will require to support us through this transition
3: well I think that the the leadership is a complex subject involving many variables of course you know at some level leadership means giving people something positive to do you know helping people achieve their uh, uh, self-actualizing needs, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Leadership involves fulfilling all of those needs. But the higher, the higher levels of need, the self, the need for people to self-actualize themselves, that depends on their service to the world. In other words, your own self-actualization is tied up with your ability to make to create value, right? To make the the, 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 the conditions better in some small or even large way. So as as people seek leadership. They seek guidance. They seek inspiration. They seek a kind of spiritual energy that that helps them participate in not only their own self actualization but the self actualization of a larger culture. So, leadership, the spiritual energy of leadership, if you will, when it's done right, um, involves, uh, uh, in a sense, the the communication or transmittal of intrinsic value, like the the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so, when we want to get to the essence of leadership, um, uh, we, can, we can see it in uh, those who are exemplars of the good, the true, and the beautiful.
1: So, that kind of leads into my next question. It's like, um, what makes the difference between someone that's seeking the leadership and a leader?
3: Well, everyone who would lead, right, must, uh, uh, must work on that. I mean, you know, ideally uh you're leading in your being in such that you don't have to go out to the world and promote yourself right you just you you do what you're doing and people notice because it's creating value that's the sort of the most authentic kind of leadership but we live in a in a world where uh, you know ideal types are not always realized every i think leader that we can point to who we might admire and say that person's you know, demonstrating excellent leadership they, they had to work it a bit. They had to uh, put their work out in the world in a way that, that people could appreciate it and value it. So, um, you know, there's there's both uh, the instrumental and the intrinsic, right? Ways in which things are just good as they are and they attract people, and ways in which we, we do have a duty to communicate, to uh, promote, to go out in the world. Like, you've got this uh, excellent radio series and a certain amount of... of sharing that with the world letting people know that it's out there and that they would benefit from listening that's part of the process of your leadership um, that you're offering with the science of magic
1: so you know materialistic science is admittedly short-sighted right now when it comes to spiritual issues but on the other hand some new age practices are really subject to kind of ungrounded magical thinking would you mind going into this a little bit well sure Uh, you know so the
3: Part of the perspective of this integral philosophy or integral consciousness that I represent or I'm part of recognizes that that there's there's a a, a pattern of development in human consciousness and culture, and that this that there are many patterns. It's a you know, complex structure of development. But there is no development that lacks a structure, and understanding the patterns of development in human culture and consciousness helps us appreciate how we can make things, you know, how we can participate in in, uh, uh, co-creating further evolution, making things better by, by making them more inclusive and more whole. So every one of these stages has both a beautiful expression of itself and a fundamentalism, right, a kind of a rigid clinging. And so, for example, within traditional religious culture, there are these beautiful expressions of service and love right, that we find in, in pretty much every traditional religion, but there are also people who ascribe to a kind of a fundamentalist rigid version of that, right? Not all religionists are fundamentalists, and not all modernists, not all people who sort of have a rational, scientific view of the world are materialists, right? I would say that materialism, the extreme view that the only thing in the universe is matter in motion, and that the universe is essentially an accident. Uh, that that's a form of fundamentalism at the level of a modernity, right? And, and even at the progressive level, you have uh, uh, p- people who are wonderfully inclusive and pluralistically open, and you have forms of fundamentalism uh, within the progressive postmodern culture. So understanding that... that it, it, that these forms of fundamentalism are like eddies in the river, you know, these sort of backward flows that end up in little whirlpools. That's a way of understanding the blindness that insists that the universe is just matter in motion. Uh, and so just like we, you know, we wouldn't spend a lot of time considering the ideas of fundamentalist Christians, at least you know, we might love them and appreciate there's truth in there, but you don't want to argue with one. The same goes with uh, the scientific materialists, Right. Uh, that, that that's a form of fundamentalist view, which I think uh, is is holding science back at this point. You know, not that we want to uh, uh, eliminate what you might call methodological naturalism, right? An approach of science is that says we want to explain things with as much natural causes as possible. But when we look around, and the most fundamental thing there is consciousness, can't be described in materialistic terms, and uh, you know, it, it's not reducible to matter. Uh, should be ample evidence. To refute uh, materialism, it's very important for people to be able to distinguish between science and scientism, right? Science is one of humanity's greatest achievements, right? I mean, all you have to do is look at the wonders of scientific medicine to appreciate how the human condition has been dramatically improved by science over the last 300 years. But scientism uh, is is a a philosophy of science, or almost like a religion of science, which includes extra-scientific assumptions about the universe being purely material, and, um, you know, that, that's an outworn belief system uh, that um, is, is not doing science any good.
1: We're going to have to take another short break here. Um, we'll pick up with this on the other side. Steve and I will be back shortly, so don't leave us now. This is the Science of Magic, thescienceofmagic.net, the place where altruistic professionals of science and the esoteric create common ground for the betterment of our world.
2: You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
1: Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. Our guest this hour is Steve McIntosh, the author of The Presence of the Infinite, Evolution's Purpose, and integral consciousness, his website is steve dot com Steve, what do you think the cultural roots of america 's current challenges are?
3: Well, as I spoke earlier about the the different worldviews that occupy american culture uh, the, the 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 mainstream of American culture, we could describe that worldview as modernity right You look at the pages of the new york times it uh, it expresses the values of uh, Rationalism, science, achievement, economic prosperity, those mainstream values uh, are the the sort of identifying worldview for approximately 50% of the U.S. population. But it's also important to recognize, and I think it's pretty obvious, that about 30% of the U.S. population uh... make meaning from a different world view uh... this we generally describe as the, the traditional worldview uh... it's mostly christianity uh... but not all right not all many christians are 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 described to a, a modernist worldview but for people who who make meaning from a traditional worldview for example scripture is more authoritative than science right if science contradicts scripture then scripture has to be right Um, And these two worldviews have been uh, interacting uh, in in various ways, both dialectically and cooperatively, since the Enlightenment for 350 years. But since the 1960s, a a new worldview has emerged, uh, which we sometimes refer to as progressive postmodernism. It's also been known as the cultural creative worldview. This is a distinct worldview that pushes off against both uh, you know, the materialism of modernity, and um, the, uh, the parochialism of the traditional worldview. Uh, in many ways, it's relying on the achievements of these previous worldviews, both materially and uh, from a values perspective. But this countercultural worldview is seeking a more world-centric, a more holistic culture, uh, where um, people aren't as concerned with material possessions or achievement. They're more concerned with their own um, self-actualization and growth. And this uh, this countercultural worldview has uh, disrupted American culture for both good and bad over the last 60 years. Right, it began in the 60s as a kind of a youth movement. Uh, we could trace its roots before that, but but it sort of gained momentum and became a distinct worldview uh, in the 70s and 80s as the 60s movement was sort of assimilated into parts of the larger culture. You can see it in academia and in the uh, entertainment industry and, and and you know alternative spirituality, of course, the environmental movement. There's many ways in which this cultural frame is in antithesis to the rest of the culture. So appreciating that, that politics is downstream from culture uh, it helps us uh, envision a way of, of influencing people's values, indeed evolving their consciousness, not to make them necessarily all progressive or, or countercultural, but a way in which the, the, that people's, people don't have to change their values they can expand the scope of what they're able to value. They can come to appreciate um, the upside of e- every one of these worldviews, regardless of which one they choose as their primary, you know, meaning-making frame. Uh, so, so being, getting a clear view of the dynamics of, of cultural development and seeing how values uh, create people's identity, engender their loyalty, uh, it, it it suggests an approach to building agreement and political will and overcoming. The stuckness of the polarization that is currently paralyzing, um, you know, politics in America and elsewhere.
1: Mm. Our guest this hour is Steve McIntosh, a leader in the Integral Philosophy movement and author of the book "The Presence of the Infinite." His website is steve.mackintosh.com. So, Steve, now that the hippies have thrown a wrench in the works, <laughs> 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 what you, know, you do, see that? <laughs> what can the average person do to start moving towards this? Um, um, agreement, a place of agreement where we can uh, value each other 's viewpoints with even if we don 't take them on sure well w- w- one of the one of the opportunities for
3: uh, uh, it, it, as I said uh, making the move toward increasing the scope of what you 're able to value is uh, appreciating these worldview structures, how they make meaning within us right our consciousness isn 't completely controlled by cultural worldviews. But cultural worldviews supply an important part of our identity. And, and uh, uh, you know, in some ways, they think our thoughts for us. They provide our opinions by reference to the cultural group that we identify with. And so this is not this is natural and, and, and positive, but it's important that people appreciate that the, a world you can have you or you can have it. And the process of, of evolving your consciousness involves... Turning what was once subject into object, right? So that, that you can still hold your same views. You can still appreciate the same worldview, but you can, you can in, in appreciate other people's worldviews uh, in a way uh, that you can't if you can't stand outside your own worldview, if you can't look at it from the outside, right? If you can't take a, a broader perspective on it. And that's not a thesis of a relativism, but it, it does help people appreciate that um, their worldview is a system. And in today's culture, those systems are in relation to each other. And the more we can harmonize the relationships between, you know, different worldviews, the more we can increase our value metabolism, if you will, to be able to recognize the positive values that we, in a sense, already share with the worldviews that we might normally oppose, uh, this is one of the ways we can um, achieve greater cultural unity. It involves appreciating um, the structures of consciousness and culture from the outside as well as participating in them from the inside.
1: So basically we're we're being challenged with turning everything inside and out. And historically we've been controlled by our worldview and we're looking at the opportunity to use our worldview as a way to interface with the world but not be controlled by it. Sure, and
3: we can also appreciate that every one of these worldviews has both uh, uh, important ideals and ideas, as well as pathologies, right? Everyone is burdened by a shadow. And so being able to tell the difference between, uh, so for example, if we're progressives and we look at traditional worldview and we see only bigotry and xenophobia and, and authorita- author- authoritarianism, all the negatives that go with uh, a traditional worldview, we don't appreciate how our society is living on the borrowed capital of the achievements of these traditional worldviews, right? The Fair play, honesty, decency, respect for rightful authority. These are values that are part of the internal cultural ecosystem upon which we rely. So being able to recognize that every one of the values, uh, stages, every one of these levels or worldviews has both positive values that we need to carry forward, or we're going to regress ourselves, as well as pathologies that we we need to prune away and, and diminish that important work of teasing apart the dignities from the disasters is a very important practice that goes with expanding the scope of what we're able to value and evolving our consciousness in the process.
1: Mm. Steve, what changes do you see coming for humanity in the next 10 years?
3: Well, you know, with the election of Trump, things are highly unpredictable, right? We're (laughs) we're certainly at a crossroads. Uh, You know, regression is a, is a, a greater possibility than it's ever been. Um, but sometimes, if you're going to jump, you have to stoop down. <laughs> you know, there's there's, there's a ways in which a certain amount of readjustment backward, uh, if you will, uh, is, is a prerequisite to a more stable advance forward. So um, what I see in the next 10 years is uh, I'm optimistic. I see, ultimately, that there will be a, a, a maturity, a cultural maturity uh, in the society, not across the board, not as if all our problems are uh, you know, shortcomings are going to be overcome in 10 years, but I do think that, um, that, that, that all things eventually work together for good and that even something as threatening as uh, the Trump administration um, in 10 years will uh, lead to uh, you know, a, a, larger, a, a larger development that uh, can come from the ways in which you know, the negatives that are associated with this period of Trump will, will make us uh, appreciate um, things we may have taken for granted before. So, again, I don't want to be um, completely Pollyanna about it. We have to fight against regression. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think that we have a moral duty to be optimistic.
1: So we have a couple minutes left. What can you tell us about the Institute for Cultural Evolution? Well, this, this
3: integral perspective, this, uh, this, this emerging new worldview that's, that's post postmodern, right, if you'll pardon the term, we're we're, we're transcending and including the, prog- the achievements uh, and the pathologies of the progressive counterculture we're kind of coming out of that but we're we're trying to reinclude modernity and even traditionalism and pre- traditional we're, we're trying we're we're, we're, we're making our p- advance beyond um, the the um, antithesis of this progressive culture uh, through the process described by Hegel the negation of the negation right we're partially negating the anti-modernism and the reverse patriotism that we see in progressive culture. And that doesn't mean that we're going to return to being, you know, xenophobic or, or sort of traditionally patriotic. But it also means that we can appreciate how modernity is foundational and it's one of the greatest achievements of humanity. And while we, we, we want to do better than that, we want to get rid of the pathologies, we don't, we don't want to have environmental degradation or, you know, oppression a, a or a gross inequality, but we also don't want to go back to living on two dollars a day. So this way in which we're coming to be more sympathetic to these earlier stages that the progressive culture rejects is um, is, is one of the ways that that this, this perspective yields a new kind of politics, a more inclusive kind of politics, and that's what the Institute for Cultural Repre- Institute represents is a platform for the ideas and the activities that go with. Uh, wanting to evolve beyond our current culture of uh, hyper-partisan polarity.
1: So they can, people can find more about that on your website? Well, sure. I have two
3: websites. My author website that goes with more with my spiritual uh, work and philosophy is stevemcintosh.com. But the Institute for Cultural Evolution, I'm the president, but it's not just mine. There are other people involved, and, and that is culturalevolution.org. And okay, there are well, charities there. You can take a worldview test or a polarization test, lots of papers to read and videos. It's it's a Ta- time a
1: flies Time flies and time flies and we're out of it. Thank you so much for being with us. Our guest this hour has been Steve McIntosh, a leader in the integral philosophy movement and author of the book Presence of the Infinite. His website is SteveMackintosh.com. Until next time, dear ones, may you be blessed with knowledge and comforted with love as you embrace a third option. Don't miss our next program. Science of